Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. You can find us online at cruxnow.com. Also the host of this show, Last Week in the Church. This is where we take some leftover Catholic news, in some cases a few days old, but what we do is we throw it in the skillet, sprinkle over some spices and our secret Crux brand sauce, serve it up piping hot and delicious. Here's what we've got for you this week. First, rockin' with Reuters. Pope Francis sits down for an interview with our friend and colleague, Phil Puella of the Reuters News Agency, in which he talks, among other things, resignation, abortion, and Ukraine. We'll break it all down for you. Second, banned in San Fran, but red carpet in Rome. U.S. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, recently barred from communion by the Archbishop of her own home diocese in San Francisco, was in Rome this week where she got communion at a papal liturgy. We'll try to explain what's going on there. Third, loving the liturgy. Pope Francis puts out a new document on the liturgy, contains no new law. It's more by way of moral exhortation, but we'll try to explain the Pope's liturgical vision and what he is laying out in this document. Then, updates on the unknowable. <laughs> We've got two updates on ongoing Catholic stories. One, the Vatican's trial of the century in which 10 different defendants are, have been indicted for various forms of financial crime related to a land deal in London. We'll give you the latest there. And then in Germany, where the synodal path of the German church has some people very excited and other people deeply alarmed, there is a new development there. We will break that down for you as well. All that and more is waiting for you on this edition of Last Week in the Church. So please, please stick around. All right, everybody. Well, listen, happy Tuesday to you. For those of you who are watching this from the United States, hope you had a wonderful July 4th weekend, and, you know, God bless America. We begin this week with a new interview that Pope Francis has given to, again, our friend and longtime colleague, Phil Puella of the Reuters News Agency, in which Pope Francis discusses a variety of topics of interest. This interview dropped yesterday, July 4th, Francis, by the way, has a habit of doing really interesting things on July 4th that requires Americans here in Rome to work rather than taking the day off. Last year, you may remember, on July 4th was the day Pope Francis went into the Gemelli Hospital for his colon surgery. This year, it's the day in which this interview with Reuters dropped. So, first of all, Pope Francis addressed rumors of his resignation. Now, these rumors started earlier in the summer when Pope Francis announced that he was going to make a trip to L'Aquila in central Italy, and among other things, will be visiting the tomb of Pope Celestine V. He was a 13th century pope, and the last pope to voluntarily resign the papacy before Benedict XVI. Benedict XVI had visited Celestine's tomb, four years before he resigned. And the fact that Pope Francis was going caused a lot of eyebrows to raise and tongues to wag. 
This taken in tandem with the fact that he is called a consistory to create new cardinals, and then two days of meetings with all of the cardinals of the world for late August, which is an unusual time to do something like that, and the Pope's ongoing health problems, which recently have forced him to use either a wheelchair or a cane during his, his movements in public, all of that taken together led some people to speculate that maybe Pope Francis is getting ready for an historic resignation himself. So in this interview, Puella put the question to Francis, are you about to resign? Pope Francis's answer was, never entered my mind. Honestly, never thought about it. He said, for now, nope, not going to do it. Now, he did go on to add that one day it will probably be the case that he can no longer do the job. And if that's the case, then he is prepared to step down. He said, in that sense, the example of Benedict XVI was a really good thing for the Catholic Church. And he called Benedict XVI, well, in Italian, he used the word grande, which means sort of great. And the idea being that while Pope Francis is not taking the idea of an, of an eventual resignation off the table, he is quite clearly signaling that whenever that day may be, it certainly is not today. And for today, he is full steam ahead. All right, so that was point one. Point two, Pope Francis was asked in this interview his opinion on the recent Dobbs v. Jackson ruling of the U.S. Supreme Court that effectively overturned the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision legalizing abortion. Now, Pope Francis emphasized he has not read this ruling. He hasn't had the chance to study it. He can't comment on its legal merits. But he did go on to comment in more general terms about abortion and said, you know, beyond the jurisprudence, there is a moral question here. And the moral question is, is it ever justified to kill an innocent human life in order to solve a problem, however harrowing or agonizing that problem may be? And he invoked a comparison that he has used before. He compared abortion to hiring a hitman and left it very clear that he is personally quite morally, strongly morally opposed to abortion. Now, he was, however, asked a follow-up question, which will, and this will become relevant in a moment, but the follow-up question was, what about denying communion to pro-choice Catholic politicians? And in answer to that question, Pope Francis said, look, whenever the church loses its pastoral nature, whenever a bishop loses his pastoral nature, this creates a political problem. And he said, that's all I can say. We'll try to explain what that meant in just a moment when we come to the Nancy Pelosi story. Finally, in this Reuters interview, Pope Francis was asked about the idea that he might travel to Kiev in Ukraine, which is a hypothesis that has been widely floated. It looked like it might actually be happening earlier this summer, but then for a variety of reasons, it didn't take place. What Pope Francis said in his interview with the Reuters is that he really wants to go to Kiev, but it is important to him that before he would go to Kiev, he would also go to, go to Moscow, have the opportunity to speak with Russian President Vladimir Putin, 
and sort of make the case for peace directly with him. And the idea being that Pope Francis would not want his trip to Kiev, should that happen, to look like he is siding entirely with the Western powers and against the position of President Putin, but instead he wants it to look like, and, and I, I, I think not just look like, he wants it actually to be, that he and the Vatican are super partes, that they are above the ideological divisions, that their interest here is peace and humanitarian concern for the victims of war, and that they're not taking sides Russia v. NATO, Russia v. the West, or whatever. He did actually suggest in this interview that there might be at least a glimmer of possibility that after his July 24th to the 30th trip to Canada, which he confirmed is going to take place, that after that trip, that he might be able to make this outing to both Moscow and Kiev, as ever we will see, but were that to be the case, it would obviously be one of the great news stories of 2022. We'll obviously be tracking it very closely on the correct site. Just a couple of other little details from this interview with the Reuters that are interesting. First, Pope Francis acknowledged that in addition to the osteoarthritis in his knee, which we all knew about, he said he's actually suffered a small fracture in his knee. This occurred, he said, when he made a movement when the knee was inflamed and it caused a small fracture. You know, we will see whether this does or does not induce the Pope to have the surgery that many of his medical advisors have counseled. And I suppose the other thing that is worthy of note is that he talked about how painful it was to him to have to cancel his scheduled trip to the Democratic Republic of Congo and South Sudan in early in July and said that he still hopes that he can go there as quickly as possible. Read the whole thing for yourself. We have full coverage of it on the correct side. All right. Second, Nancy Pelosi. So, as we have talked about before on this show, Archbishop Salvatore Cordiglione in San Francisco recently made a public declaration that Speaker Pelosi should not receive communion in the Archdiocese of San Francisco, this, of course, because of her support for abortion rights. Now, in the meantime, this week, Speaker Pelosi and her husband and some members of their family were in Rome for a family vacation, and while here, they decided to take in Pope Francis's Mass for the Feast of Saints Peter and Paul on June 29th. And while at this Mass, Speaker Pelosi received communion. Now, we need to emphasize she did not receive it directly from Pope Francis. Pope Francis didn't even preside over this liturgy because of his knee issues. He allowed somebody else to preside. He simply delivered the homily. He did not distribute communion. So that Speaker Pelosi, like everybody else in St. Peter's, received it from one of the priests assisting at the Mass. And it's not even clear that this priest, who we have no reason to believe was necessarily American, this priest might not even have known who Nancy Pelosi was. So we shouldn't overinterpret the significance of this. Nevertheless, it is a striking contrast that in her home diocese of San Francisco, Pelosi is formally barred from communion, but in Rome, she is able to receive it. And apparently, 
because it's not like it was a secret to anybody that she was in the mass. She was sitting somewhere near the front row in these kind of VIP diplomatic seats, right? Somebody could have said, like, don't give her communion, but that's obviously not what happened. So, you know, what's going on here? Well, you know, a couple of points probably are worth making. One, Pope Francis has made it clear that he is not in favor of communion bans. In previous interviews, he has said that he himself has never barred anyone from communion. When the U.S. bishops were considering adopting a document that some felt might have had some language about communion bans, Francis's pick to run the Vatican's doctrinal office sent a letter to the U.S. bishops urging them not to do anything that would damage the unity of the American church. It was seen as a clear way of saying, don't do this. Okay? And so Francis is clearly on record as against this kind of thing. The second point probably worth making is that that position did not originate with Pope Francis. It has become sharper and more clear, certainly, under Pope Francis. But let me just point out that I'm actually old enough to remember the great Jubilee year of 2000 under Pope John Paul II. I was here. Now, during the great Jubilee year, there were papal masses almost every week. There was, because there, there was a jubilee of different groups almost every day of the week. Like, I remember the jubilee of pizza chefs in St. Peter's Square. I remember the jubilee of Harley, De where motorcycle riders, where you had all these Hell's Angels on their Harleys that pulled into St. Peter's Square. There was the jubilee of circus clowns. I am not making this up. This actually happened. And for many of these events, there were papal masses. Now, the mayor of Rome at the time, was a center-left Catholic politician by the name of Francesco Rutelli, who took the same position that most Catholic Democrats in the States do on abortion, which is, I am personally opposed, but I don't feel it's my role to translate that into public policy because I have to re you know, reflect the Democratic will. Rutelli got communion at every one of these papal masses he ever went to, and in many cases, he got it from John Paul II himself. What's going on? Well, there is a basic difference between Europe and the United States. In the United States, abortion was never settled democratically. It was settled by judicial fiat. There's a sense that the people have never had their say. In Europe, on the other hand, abortion, Western Europe at least, abortion policy was settled by a democratic process. There was a kind of broad social consensus that says in most Western European nations, Abortion is going to be legal, but nobody is going to be forced to participate in it. As a result, European bishops, up to and including popes, generally are not quite as invested directly and exclusively in the abortion issue as their American counterparts. We will see how this plays out going forward. This probably isn't the last time that American politician who was having problems with their local bishop in the States may be able to come to Rome and find the same problems don't necessarily apply here. All right, third, love in the liturgy. So Pope Francis this week issued a new letter on the Catholic liturgy, Desiro Desiderabe, which was basically a kind of exhortation. This did not create any new liturgical law, so there's not some, something new that Pope Francis has banned or something new that he has authorized. It is instead a set of papal reflections 
on Catholic worship. However, it clearly builds on Tradiciones Custodes, the document that Pope Francis issued, essentially rolling back permission for celebrating the old Latin Mass that had been granted under Pope Benedict XVI. Essentially, what Pope Francis says in this document, well, two points of note. One, that it is always bad when approaches to the liturgy are colored by ideology, uh, that is, by politics. And that was taken in most quarters as a kind of swipe at the Latin mass crowd because most people associate a kind of fondness for the Latin mass with a somewhat conservative agenda for the church. The other thing Pope Francis said is he struggles to understand the attitude of those Catholics who cannot bring themselves to accept the liturgical reforms adopted by the Second Vatican Council and by popes since the Second Vatican Council. Basically, what this document does is underline that for Pope Francis, there is only one authentic version of the Catholic liturgy, and especially the Catholic Mass, and that is the post-Vatican II Mass. And that anybody who might think that the reaction to Traditiones Custodes might cause Pope Francis to maybe back off a little bit or to rethink this hardline position on the ability to celebrate the Latin Mass. No, uh-uh. Pope Francis is full steam ahead in essentially urging all Catholics to get on board with the reformed Vatican II liturgy. As I say, this document doesn't really change the law but it certainly does reveal a papal mindset that would inform any future decisions Pope Francis has to make about liturgical policy and law. All right, to, end, to wrap up, a couple of quick updates. So we've talked a lot on this show about the Vatican's trial of the century, this kind of mega trial with 10 different individual defendants and then a handful of corporate entities including, for the first time, a cardinal of the Catholic Church, Italian Cardinal Angelo Becciu, the Pope's former chief of staff, who in various ways have been charged with embezzlement, graft, misappropriation, financial shenanigans. As part of this botched deal to buy a piece of property in London, a former Herod's warehouse in the posh neighborhood of Chelsea, which was supposed to be converted into luxury apartments and the rents from which were supposed to guarantee the Vatican income for many years to come. Well, uh, the whole thing went wildly wrong. And the update is that this week, the Vatican was finally able to sell off this property, which it had spent, in, at the end of the day, almost $400 million to acquire. It sold it off for somewhere in the neighborhood of $280 million to a financial affairs company called Bain Capital, which is based in Boston, Mass., which means that when the dust settles, the Vatican took a bath to the tune of about $140 million. Now, how that's possible remains one of the great sort of mysteries of the faith of our time. Because as anyone involved in real estate will tell you, there really is no such thing as a losing real estate proposition in the London market. As our managing editor at Crux, Charles Collins, famously said, 
that if you were to buy a piece of dirt in the middle of a street in London, by the time you could get to the sidewalk, that piece of dirt would have doubled in value. That's how real estate in London works. And yet the Vatican managed to lose, you know, a fair bit of change on this transaction. Now, this speaks to the, the issue that is really at the heart of the present trial. Were those losses the result of fraud, deception, criminal misconduct, or is this simply a case of woefully inadequate financial mismanagement and that the search is now on for scapegoats who will take the fall for those poor financial decisions? That's something, of course, that is really at the heart of what the tribunal in the Vatican case is going to have to decide. When will they make this decision, you ask? Well, <laughs> I remind you that we are about to celebrate the one-year anniversary of this trial. So far, we have heard from 10 witnesses. The presiding judge has announced we have 200 more to go. So when we're going to get this ruling is anybody's guess. All right, finally, we shift our attention this week to Germany, where the German church has been on what they call a synodal path for some time now in which the voices of ordinary German Catholics, the rank and file, are to be heard in terms of, you know, what the future of the German Catholic Church may be. Now, this whole process has alarmed many people, including in the Vatican, because there is some concern that the Synod might end up recommending things such as married clergy, women priests, gay marriage, that would clearly be at odds with Orthodox Catholic doctrine, and you know, then what do you do? Others, on the other hand, find this process liberating and exciting, that at long last, the church is finally listening to the voices of its own people, and you know, we will see where that goes. Now, the recent development in all of this is that the German government, in, during this past week, released the data on the number of Germans who officially disaffiliated from the Catholic Church during the last year, that is calendar 2021. The number was 360,000, which is an all-time high, 360,000. Now, in part, this is simply German Catholics who don't want to pay the church tax. If you're registered as a Catholic in Germany, there is a kind of add-on small percentage to your income tax to support the works of the church. Some of this is just people who don't want to pay it, but some of it is people who are unhappy with the church for one reason or another. Now, here's the thing that is fascinating of all this. What the government reported is how many people left. What they did not report is why. Now, liberals will tell you Oh, it's because they are upset with the stuffy, conservative nature of the Catholic Church. They're upset with the Church's poor performance on the clerical sexual abuse scandals. They're upset with the Church's hostility to women, hostility to gays, and that unless the Church is willing to adopt sweeping reforms, people are going to continue to bail. Conservatives will tell you, no, it's exactly the opposite. People are leaving because the German Catholic Church no longer stands for anything that, you know, when you signal that you were willing to give up in your core beliefs, then what's the difference? You know, you might as well be Lutheran or mainline Protestant or vaguely secular or whatever. And that, you know, it's the church's failure to draw clearer lines in the sand that has produced this crisis. The truth of it is the data don't support either of those conclusions. 
what would be really interesting, and, and here is my invitation to some Catholic research outfit in Germany, drill down into these numbers and find out what the reason is that people are actually bailing. I remember when the Pew Forum did a similar survey in the United States that concluded that one in 10 of all adult Americans are former Catholics, which created a great sort of atmosphere of alarm in the American church. You know what we learned? Half of those Catholics went on to become either mainline Protestants or secularists, which might indicate they thought the Catholic church was too conservative. The other half became evangelicals and Pentecostals, which might indicate they thought the Catholic church was too liberal. In other words, it invited skepticism about any ideological explanation of this data. I would hope a similar kind of longitudinal survey could be done in Germany because I think it would be really, really interesting. All right, that is our show for this week. Full coverage of all of these stories is on the Crux site. Again, that is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent journalism. When you are on the Crux site, by the way, we have a handy-dandy, nice and easy way to make a financial contribution to support Crux's work. If you could bring yourself to do that, we would be infinitely grateful. Our independence is our most precious commodity, but it ain't free and it ain't cheap. Uh, we need your help to continue to maintain that. If you could do it from the bottom of our collective hearts, we are deeply grateful. Over the course of the next seven days, my charge to you is to stay safe, stay healthy, in this sweltering July heat, also stay cool. We will talk to you again next Tuesday, same bat time, same bat channel. In the meantime, have a fantastic and blessed week.